Well, welcome, everyone. Thank you, band, and a big shout-out to... Uh, Our sound team back there, Crystal, Clay, Clay, could you help me with my cord here? It got assaulted by someone who was trying to hold my hand during. As we learned from our, our uh, study in Romans, singing may or may not be worship. Worship is when we are on the altar as a living sacrifice. Someone could be singing and be completely proud, hoping the people in front of them hear their great voice. Some people during worship could be not singing because they're ashamed of the voice they have and don't want anyone to hear, and so they're afraid to sing. However, they understand that fear, they acknowledge that fear, they get in touch with it and worship God in spite of their not singing. Singing only means one thing. It means we're singing. Whether you're worshiping or not is completely up to you. Clay sets the stage. We hope to lead all of us into worship, and they do, all four of them, a great job with that. But keep in mind, if you see someone with their eyes closed, it may mean that they're praying during worship. See someone sitting down, it may mean they have a bad back. It may mean they're feeling rebellious and don't want to do what everybody else is doing. It may mean they, like me, I had a drug problem when I was younger. We haven't discussed this before, but I was drugged to church a lot. And so human beings created in the image of God, we are naturally called to be both independent and in community. That independent side can strike. If we're forced to do something, our natural response is to eventually rebel and exercise our God-given independence, right? So parents, be careful on that. When we create speed limits, people do 73. When we create another speed limit of 85, people roll 90. When we create limits, human beings will push those limits as Scripture shows that. And there's a part of that that's because of our divine creation being created in the image of God. There's a part of that 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 is naturally rebellious. So who are you here this morning? As we jump back into the book of Matthew, are you someone who is here and has the need to be needed? And the acts of love you do are really highly manipulative acts of love. What they really are is screams and even demands to be needed. Who of you here needs to succeed? You will succeed at all costs, even if that means selling that crippled steer. Who of you here has the need to be special and you demand to be special? I'm unique. I'm not like the rest of my family. 
I'm special. I'm different. Who of you here has the need to know things and collect information and sit in the corner and be right silently to yourself? Anybody yet? Have I got anybody yet? Because hit yeah, me too. I've hit me about four times. We've hit Susie five times, and I haven't even done the fifth one yet. <clears throat> Which of you here has the need for security, and you actually worship, worship security more than you worship God? Security determines where you sit in a room, where you sit at church, whether you raise your hands or not, whether you don't raise your hands. You worship safety and demand safety. You require that you're in a safe place. Because fear dominates your life. Who of you here lives to avoid pain? Comfort is what you worship. You'll step into life as long as there's a guarantee of no pain. No risk. You'll move when there's guarantees. Who of you lives to be against Someone says, the sky's, sky sure is blue. You'll say, yeah, but it's cold. Someone says, wow, I really like this restaurant. I wanted to try the other one. Someone says, boy, my food is great. The next person says, gosh, mine could be a little warmer. It's too salty. Just the need, compulsion to be against whatever it is another is said or does, or feels. Who in here has the need to just avoid life? To stay busy, compulsively busy. To avoid facing the reality of reality. I fit a few of those more than I fit others. We come to Matthew, and, and I have to tell you that I'm, I'm, um, I spent some time this week in distress about how to deal with this passage. We've dealt with Tamar in the genealogy of Christ, at least Matthew's, and we've dealt with Rahab, and to me, they were relatively simple to deal with, and the text is pretty straightforward. But we come to Uriah's wife today in the four, nay, five women that are mentioned in the genealogy of Christ. We come to the third one in list. She's named as Uriah's wife. I think you'll find out why Matthew did not name her by her name Bathsheba. Uriah in this story was possibly the most honorable character in this story. Bathsheba, the, most, the second most honorable character, and David, the least most honorable character. I wrestled with this passage, and I want to tell you <clears throat> boldly, this passage is not about Bathsheba. This passage is primarily about David. Let me give you a little Old Testament background, a bit of an overview The Old Testament is about God, if you'll remember, and I know you know this, but it's about God being among us. We see he lives right there. 
in that place where there's fire at night and a cloud uh, during, the, during the day. We see that he's unapproachable because the priest does that. The New Testament, surprisingly, doesn't make God a fast food restaurant instead of a really expensive restaurant. The New Testament, even after God's extreme and repeated wounding because of us, the New Testament makes God become closer to us. He's no longer transcendent and far away. He's now imminent. Those two theological words you can remember if you'd like. He's no longer transcendent and away and distant and aloof. He is now imminent. He is here in everything. That's why we can't invite God to a place. He was there ahead of us. We can't invite God into our hearts because when you received Jesus... We can't invite God anywhere. He's already there. He's imminent. He's everywhere, all the time, in everything. Now, for those of you theological guardians, I am not tipping my hand to pantheism in any form. I'm saying that for those of us who are believers, God doesn't join us when there's three of us together. That's an analogy about community. God joins us when there's one of us together. And when there's 3,000 of us together, God doesn't join us on Sunday mornings. He doesn't meet us in this building. That's the Old, Old Testament. God meets you in your bedroom at, at night when you're trying to put your two-year-old to sleep. God meets you in the frustration of Tuesday morning when that order came in and it was wrong. God is imminent everywhere, all the time. Not here on Sunday morning when the pastor teaches or not here when certain uh, picks are strung across certain strings and when certain sticks are whacked against certain instruments. God was here before and after, and he's here now, and he'll be here as soon as I shut my mouth. God is here. He's imminent. In the Old Testament, he was far away. In the New Testament, he's imminent. In the Old Testament, God exposes sin. Many churches now, their main job, is, it seems, as we teach, is to expose sin and to expose you all. I don't see that as Jesus of the Bible. I see Jesus of the Bible as coming to us and interrupting history to cover us all. If I ever, in my teaching from the pulpit, feel, if you feel like I'm exposing your sin, I hope If I expose it once, I cover it ten times with the blood of Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What's the next verse? Loudly, please. For God did not come into the world to condemn the world. For Jesus did not. The Old Testament is is about the law. The New Testament is about grace. The Old Testament is about rules and codes. The New Testament is about one rule, one code, one impossible love. 
and screams gently in a loud whisper. This is what I require of you that you love perfectly, and you can't do it. That's why I sent Jesus. The Old Testament is about a society that is dying. And the New Testament is about a church that's coming back to life. The Old Testament Testament is about God on the outside. New Testament is God on the inside. The Old Testament is about God as grandiose and feared and non-approachable. The New Testament describes God and proves God through Jesus as common, humble, endearing, and very approachable. Matthew chapter 1, and I don't want you to turn there. It's, uh, we won't, won't be there long. Oops. Matthew chapter 1 lists these five women that I've mentioned before, and we've covered Tamar and Rahab. The next, or, or uh, yeah. Rahab and Ruth. Um, and now we're coming up to, am I right? Tamar, Rahab. I skipped Ruth, and now I've come to Uriah's wife. I, I forgot for a moment that I'd skipped Ruth. We'll come back to her in verse um, 6. Let me give you a little more historical context to Matthew here with regard to what we're reading. And, and I'll just read this verbatim like I wrote it. The New Testament surprisingly was not written in high Greek. It was not written in the formal forms that it should, one would think it would be written in. The New Testament was largely written in a Greek that is very common. Eugene Peterson even calls it street language, and there's lots of evidence that he's right about that. Matthew's genealogy tells us that we are in the flow in the middle of history. It tells us that we are in the flow in the middle of history. Millions and millions have gone before you and I and will come after. Histories, culture, science, Geology, cosmos have all been spinning in harmony with God's heart toward redemption. This list reminds us that we are not accidental in 2018 in Atoka. This is not an accident. The tragedies or the sadness or the bad things that are happening are not an accident that happened in isolation. Your stuff is not weird, and it does not ruin God's perfect plan, because there is no God's perfect plan, except Jesus makes it a perfect plan. Can we stop telling our kids that? That God has a perfect plan for you, because the first time they lie, they fall out of God's perfect will, and now I'm in his secondary plan. And the second time they lie, now they're down to the thirdary plan. And by the time I'm 10 years old, I'm in the hundredth plan. And I've got a terrible life in front of me. Because my sin has broken up God's perfect will for me. That makes for nice, tidy, theological uh, exposition. And it makes for systematic theology. But it doesn't make for what God is up to. And I think Tamar, Ruth, and Uriah's wife prove that. Your sin does not mess up God's grand cosmos plan of redemption. Folks, if if you and I believe that way, we are an arrogant people. 
Look how powerful I am. I tell one lie, and I messed up God's will for everybody. I'm not that powerful, and six-year-olds are not that powerful. Are you with me? You'll hear some folks say, we need to get rid of the sin in our camp. Come on up and repent. Folks, there will always be sin in our camp, even after repenting, because some people will repent just to satisfy the preacher who put the pressure on them. Some people will repent because it's the thing certain church cultures do. Some people will repent and then do the same thing again. Some people will and you get the idea. There's always sin in the camp. That's why we have Jesus. And folks, if there's no sin in the camp amongst you, I will guarantee you there's sin in the camp right here. As much as I want, I cannot come to this place holy. You would call me God if I did. I come to this place broken and limping and struggling and trying, and I will do my best, but I will mess up. I'll overstate one thing. I'll understate another. I'll offend someone inadvertently. I'll do it. There will be struggles with my own ego here. I cannot do it. I need Jesus. So do you. So do we. Always, 100% of the time. I can't go dip in a pool, wash my hands, eat certain foods, and sanctify myself on the outside like the Pharisees could. I can't do that anymore. It didn't work then, and it doesn't work now. <laughs> we are in the middle of this giant story, and it tells us that we are not accidental, random, or incidental. This list orients us to the ideas that God is telling the greatest story ever told, and we are in the middle of it. We are his object of affection. He is in pursuit of us. He uses broken Tamar, broken Rahab, broken Uriah's wife, David, broken clay, and broken Mark, he uses. If God were embarrassed by sin, why did he put this list together and write it down for all times? He's just not afraid of it. Jesus took care of it. God is so powerful, he even uses our sin for his good. He even uses our sin for his good. Folks, relax. Exhale. Jesus has you covered. God's work is finished. At the cross. Done. Pastor, give me an amen on that. Yeah. I might go Pentecostal on you here. Just I might just go all Pentecostal here. I won't know how to do it, but I'll do my best. And welcome, by the way. Matthew 1, chapter 6. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, the text says. Now, backstory. In 2 Samuel, chapter 11, and turn there if you'd like. It's about right there in my Bible. See that? Second chapter Samuel or Second Samuel chapter eleven, and I want to read it for you. 
In the spring, at the time when the kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained, take a note, in Jerusalem, verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? And David sent messengers to her. She came to him, and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanliness. Uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came, David asked how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house, wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants, did not go down to his house. And the story goes on. I'll finish it up. David heard that Uriah didn't go down and sleep uh, uh, or stay at home that night. He had gone down and slept with his men like a good leader. Uriah said, how can I sleep in a palace in, in, in the warmth of this place, my home, when my men are out in the field? So he, he stayed down with his men. David heard that. Do you see what David's up to? David's up to a conspiracy. David wants to have society believe that Uriah was the father of this child. So he's like, hurry up and get home, would you? So the next night, David, the man after God's own heart, if you'll remember scripture, David Sins for Uriah again. What's going on? Let's have a party. Stay over for another day. And David helped Uriah get drunk. And then he says, now go home. Have a nice bath. Enjoy your wife. And Uriah, even in his drunken state, went down, stayed with his men. Now, I don't know what Uriah's relationship with was with Bathsheba. We have no idea. Scripture doesn't tell us that. What we do know is that David was cunning. Here's some backstory on the story of, of David. Because no story starts in chapter 11, verse 1. There is always a backstory. And you know why the, the, the show, The Voice, has become so popular? Because it's not about singing anymore. It's about the backstory. And it's about that, that underdog who might make it good. The backstory is all the good stuff. How many of you, don't raise your hands, are in Samuel chapter 11? If you are, turn back over to Samuel chapter 10, and you'll notice verse 4. Now, you've heard it said from me probably a dozen times. We'll see how we're doing. If the Bible's not interesting to you, what? Thank you, Meredith and Susie and others. If the Bible's not interesting, you're not reading the right footnotes. Now, David had, had suffered both a lot of victory, but also some defeat. <clears throat> His men have just been shamed by a lowly king. And the way that his men were shamed is in chapter 10, verse 4. David, David's men, it was found out, were figured that they're making fun of Hunan. 
Hanan. So Hanan seized David's men and shaved off half of each man's beard. Imagine that. Cut off their garments in the middle at the buttocks and sent them out. Got it? They have half beards, and their robes are cut off here, and out they go. I don't know about you, but I find that hilarious. So David's been shamed a little bit. Now let's look at First Chronicles. That's back in the back here. Oops, I didn't, I didn't turn to it. Here it is. I will read it for you. So David has just come back with the ark also, and he is dancing before the Lord. And as he approaches and comes into the city of David where he lived, Michael watches him, his wife, the daughter of Saul, you'll remember, watches him from the window. Michael, the daughter of Saul, watched him from the window, and when she saw King David dancing and celebrating, she despised him. She was already distant, right? She was in the palace. She wasn't out there with him celebrating. They were already distanced. But when she saw him dancing, now we learn later on from other texts that he was dancing in a state of being largely disrobed, and there were servant girls out there. I don't know if this is Michael's real reason or if she's just looking for a reason to complain, right? Because once that starts, we can find any reason to complain about anything. And so Michael, David shows up, and Michael goes, what were you doing out there making a fool of yourself in front of the servant girls, half naked? And, And David says, I'll do that and more in the future, if, it's, if it pleases the Lord. And their relationship broke at that point. They had no more children. She despised him. That's the backstory on what we come to now. David had six wives. He was the ruler of Judah earlier, and he took six wives. Nathan, the prophet, tripled that for King David, so he had a limit of 18. We struggle with polygamy in, you know, this many years later, and I understand that. Don't worry about it. Ancient Middle Eastern society, patriarchal society, sometimes we even had it in Europe and in China. We see it where wives were taken to form political alliances to protect families, things like that. We even have that today. I've been around a token, half of your cousins. So be careful about passing judgment on a society and a culture we don't know a lot about 3,000 years later. So Nathan tripled his wives. Bathsheba was his seventh wife. Of his three wives, uh, Michael, Abigail, and Bathsheba were the were the more prominent ones in Scripture, and each of them have their own story. David was crowned at us when he was about 32 years old. He ruled for 40 years. This was about 1,000 B.C., right? So this was the beginning of the Iron Age. That's important for us to know. That was before Confucius. That was before the Buddha. That was before Plato, 
Socrates, Aristotle, is when David was hanging out. It was about 600 years before Socrates uh, happened in Europe, if you will. David is about to be drawn through a knothole into another place. Now, let me remind you that when we view a knothole, let's pretend there's one in this wall. When we view a knothole, we say, hey, that shouldn't be there. It's a knothole. It's a flaw. It's a broken piece. And all we see is the fence. But if that knothole was a downtown construction project in, in Dallas where we would begin to see, whoa, there's something going. The closer we got, we'd, we'd hear noises. We'd smell smells. And it would take us a long time to believe there's anything good that could be beyond that fence until we got our eye right up against it. Are you with me? Once our eye gets right up against that knothole, then we can see all of what's going on, almost all, of what's going on on the other side. God sucks, pushes, pulls, allows knotholes, and pulls us through those knotholes. Name a few people who have been pulled through a knothole. I'll name one, Peter. Who's another? Okay, I'll give you two, and then I'll just tolerate the silence. Jonah. Who's another? David. Job. Who's another? Mary. Mary. Paul. Joseph, Matthew, me, so on and so forth. David is about to get pulled through a knothole that he would not willingly go through because he doesn't believe, like many of you, that there can be redemption on the other side of sin. There can be, and because of Jesus is, if we're willing to participate, redemption and life that's more useful, more glorious when we get pulled through the knothole. If you haven't been pulled through a knothole yet, I pray that God will bless you by pulling you through a knothole. It will be terrible. You will think you will die but you won't. And when you get pulled through the knothole, if you allow yourself to be pulled through the knothole, you will have a limp, Jacob. You will be bruised and broken and humble. Before you went through the knothole, you were probably not those things. Let's jump into the text a little bit with uh, some, some points because you expect that of me. Point number one, times of victory or complacency are the most dangerous. Times of victory and complacency are the most dangerous. When things are going well, that's when it's the most dangerous for you and me. Every climber knows that once we get to the summit of the climb, that's about half the climb. The most dangerous part is the second half that's coming down when we're hungry, when we're tired, when we think we're finished. 
on on some of Susie and uh, my travels this year and involved a motorcycle trip uh, because of some programs we were doing. I ended up riding my motorcycle. I didn't mean to, uh, but I got dropped off about 1,000 miles before. I thought I, I ended up driving about 2,600, a little over 2,600 miles on my motorcycle. I knew that when I got 100 miles away from my house, that was my most dangerous time of the trip. I would get complacent. I would start thinking, wow, I've had a lot of riding. It's the most dangerous time of the trip. David is at home. He's in his castle. When everybody else, all of his others, are out in the field fighting, he's got up from his, his what we understand in the Hebrew to be his, probably his late afternoon nap, the heat of the day, 2.30, right in there, afternoon nap, especially for a king, whenever you wanted to, were very common. It seems he got up from his nap in the early evening, went out to stretch and look out over the village. I will tell you that I have believed and assumed wrongly that Bast was on her rooftop. She may or may not have been. I've been in the city of David. It stands up over the Kidron Valley. It looks down over um, uh, up to the Mount of Olives. It looks down over all of these houses. You could see right into the backyards. You could see into the, the, the river and the pools that were there. We don't know where she was. It doesn't say she was on his rooftop. It says David was on his rooftop. Are you with me? This idea that Bathsheba is a seductress who's out there bathing on a rooftop. Because I, I saw Susie bathing once, and it's a little bit. We don't get that from Scripture. We, what we know is David got up from his nap, and David went out and looked over his kingdom, and he saw a beautiful woman. Now, we don't, we don't know how old Bathsheba was. We know at the time of this writing that David was probably 44 when this happened. Point number two, point one, times of victory are the most dangerous. Point number two, David initiated all of this. David initiated all of this. Went to his roof, looked around. Inquired, who's that woman? Sent messengers to get the woman. And then the woman came, and she's, hi, king, what's up? And he initiated again. Some have said Bathsheba was raped. We don't have a clue of that. Some say she was complicit. We don't get a clue of that either. And I'll come more to that in the rest of my story, but I am convinced that she is not the seductress that we have made her be. Point three, life can put us in some binds sometimes that seem impossible and may in fact are impossible to get out. Come to the United States, to New York or to Houston as a domestic nanny and be abused the man who got you here and who signed your papers and who paid for you and who has your passport in his safe for safekeeping, tell me that woman is not in a bind. The 
by being living in poverty and somehow getting across the river, ending up in this county without the appropriate papers because you could make enough money at $8.50 or $10 an hour so you could send back home, but not enough to get you legal. Life can put us in binds sometimes. And if you've ever been in a bind that was, had very little to do with you, or you made a choice that brought you to unintended consequences, you will understand some of the illustrations that I just gave recently. Folks, most of the time, I believe we create our own issues. By our choices, we create our own issues. However, there are times in life when we get caught, when we are vulnerable. Did you know that 6.6 million children get referred to child protective agencies every year in this country? A three-year-old doesn't have the option to pack his bags, get in his car, and leave. And three-year-olds do not burn themselves with cigarette marks on their buttocks. Sixty-three percent of the suicides in these United States are from fatherless homes. Ninety percent of the runaways are from fatherless homes. According to childhelp.org, that is 32 times the average. Foreigners without protection. As you know, I spent a year in Japan, and during that year I learned about the Simkai Kohai system, the master-slave system, where the juniors and seniors are the masters, and they would perform homosexual acts with the 7th and 8th graders. Those 7th and 8th graders were relatively helpless because Japan in those days and this days was an honor-shame society. And if there was shame, you took it like it was honor. Silence rules as those boys, young boys, were abused, helpless. Bathsheba fits this category. Bathsheba was a foreigner, as was Rahab, Ruth, and Tamar, all foreigners. Interesting thought, if you ask me. Bathsheba fits the category. She was a Hittite. She was trying to do the right thing. She was doing her ritual cleanings. She was doing the honorable thing. She was at home while her husband was on the field. Her husband was away, and she was taking care of things. The king summoned her. What bind was she put into, folks? Do you get that? Her husband was one of the king's greatest warriors, a commander, and the, her husband's boss said, hey, come on up to the house. What choice did she have? For Bathsheba, adultery was the death sentence. In fact, if we read Scripture, I'm not sure this applies entirely. It may. I didn't study it enough. But this could be a situation where she was taken to her father's doorstep and stoned as required of the law. 
She was at risk of her life, and David put her there. David was the king. He was above all that. He initiated all of this. So in closing, in in my last few points, folks, and I wish I had some really funny stories to tell today, but I'm sorry I don't. I'm so moved by my conviction that David did this, not Bathsheba, this week. I'm so moved by that, I really couldn't find or even seem that a humorous story even fits. David was an abuser. And he took advantage of the vulnerable, whose protection was away. And it gets... And it gets... That just is part of my story. It gets worse after this. As we pursue this story the next time I'm here. My final points. Be careful about how we judge anyone or anything. We don't know all the backstory. Be careful how we judge David. He was estranged from his wife, Michael. Be careful how we judge anyone or anything. Bathsheba was pregnant. We need to be very careful about how we judge her. You want to know someone else in this story who was also pregnant? Tamar. And then finally, I believe we need to initiate protection for the vulnerable, not initiate self-protection for the powerful. That's not a political statement. But if there's a fallen, broken, bruised one amongst us, our job is to jump on top of them and cover them, not to run from them for cover. Got it? If one of us is down... Our job is to jump on them and protect them from further harm. Not to run away and distance ourselves to protect ourselves from further harm. Three, failure is always a gateway to something new. Failure is always a gateway to something new. And folks, if you've had a failure and all of you have, and you've silenced it, and you're living in shame, I want to tell you, it's a gateway to something new, if we can step out and own it. This story is not secret anymore. It's had redemptive powers when it's come into the open. Some of us think, if I tell that story, I will die. What will happen is people will come around you. Yeah, I see lots of head noddings. We create a shame culture that really doesn't allow us to tell each other the truth about ourselves. Finally, Bathsheba is an accessory to this story. She is an accessory to David's sin. I began the last couple of weeks preparing for this message about Bathsheba. And the more I prepared about Bathsheba, the more I got blocked. And the more I read and studied and backread and thought and concerned myself with this story, I came to the conclusion that this story is not about Bathsheba. And that is why Matthew did not say her name. 
Matthew wanted to protect her dignity somewhat and contrast her or contrast David and Uriah, a righteous man doing the right thing at the right time and a really wrong man using his power. Bathsheba got caught in the middle. That's all. I'm going to pick up on the story because, as you know, there's more to this story. And David gets only more sinister. I'm not going to let him on the, off the hook until we tell the truth as we can understand it about him. And then when we understand the truth about David, the full truth, we're going to wrap arms around him, we're going to love him, and we're going to forgive him. Because each of us is David. Each of us has manipulated our world somehow, sometime, to take an advantage over someone more vulnerable. We've used our position of being powerful. We've used our position of being cute. We've used our position of being wealthy. We've used our position of being stoic, of being a bully, of being whatever we've used our position that we could get. We've even used our position of being a victim to bully and take advantage of other people. God forgive us all. And grace to us all. Father, thanks for this message. Thank you for giving us Bathsheba. I ask you, Father, that you would rewrite my internal language about what I hear when I hear her voice or her name. She would cause me to see her differently. Father, I ask that where I've overspoken, you would correct, and where I've underspoken, you would... uh, you would fill in the gaps. Fathers, we go out this week. Would you bless each person? Would you gift them with enough failure to keep them humble? And would you gift them with enough successes to give them hope? In the name of Jesus, amen. Folks, you're dismissed. Susie and I will see you in a couple weeks. I think we're in Granbury, Texas, and then we're in Washington and Idaho. So um, that's what we do. If someone will open the doors in back, thanks for coming. And uh, Susie and Clay and I will hang around here in front, and we'll see you soon. Thank you, Susie.